0: Episode 192, Michael Reddington, Certified Forensic Interviewer.
1: I might have to do this like NCAA tournament bracket style and (laughs) pick a hundred or so and, and start working my way down.
0: I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes because we all make mistakes. But what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth, and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. To learn more about Michael Reddington, his company, his book, and more, look for links in the show notes or go to markraven.com slash mistake (laughs) 192. I almost read the wrong number. but now on with the show. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome back to My Favorite Mistake. Our guest today is Michael Reddington. He is an expert forensic interviewer, and he's the president of Inquasive Inc., which provides businesses and leaders with the tools they need to improve their leadership by activating the truth in all of their business interactions. So interesting concept there. And before I tell you more about Michael, first off, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Thank you, Mark. I'm great. I appreciate you having me on today. Yeah, well, I'm excited to to talk to you, not just your favorite mistake story, but we'll talk about things from your uh, profession and about your book. So Michael's new book is titled The Disciplined Listening Method, How a Certified Forensic Interviewer Unlocks Hidden Value in Every Conversation that was published in March of 2022. Uh, Michael details his innovative listening approach for anyone who's looking to improve their communication and their relationship building skills. So using his background, again, in forensics and his understanding of human behavior through interrogation, Michael teaches businesses to use the, the truth to their advantage. So um, th- this is not an interrogation today. This will be, <laughs> be more of a conversation, and uh, hopefully I'm doing a good job um, with my listening skills. Um, so with all that, I'm, I'm ready to listen, Michael. What would you say is your favorite mistake? As we talked a little bit before, I might have to do this like NCAA tournament
1: bracket style and <laughs> pick a hundred or so and, and start working my way down. Um, so trying to choose one to discuss today was was a bit more challenging than I would have thought. But I, I think especially to keep it a little bit more business related, the one that jumps to the forefront in my mind is when I made an assumption that an agreement with a client was ready to be made when in fact it wasn't. And Mm -hmm. I'll keep the story a a bit brief so I don't bore Mm -hmm. everyone to death right out of the gate, but I'm happy to certainly fill in the blanks. Yeah. Very long story short, earlier on in my business, it was... Common for somebody to basically tell me, you know what, that sounds good, but I'd like my team to meet you first. Can you come in and do like 45, 60 minutes with my team? And if they like you, great, we'll do it. And if not, if not. And that was a bet I was always willing to make. And for a long period of time was batting a thousand with. I would go do one of those. The engagement would ensue. So it just worked out all the time. So in one particular occasion, um, a woman who actually was friends with my wife, was in a conversation with my wife, said they were looking for somebody and asked the same thing. Would I be willing to come in and talk with their team? And if that went well, it would lead to a session. The answer is yes. So I go in, I do the session. And I'm sure if it was on video, I could find things that I could have done better. But essentially, it felt like it couldn't have gone better. They asked for extra time. We were working multiple flip charts. I stayed for drinks after with everybody. Like, it literally couldn't have gone much better. And their CEO was in the room for this entire process. So afterwards, we all shake hands. We leave. Hey, we'll follow up. To me, it felt like, well, i bet a 1,000 in these scenarios. And everything felt great. So it's a fait complete, Right couple of weeks go by I don't hear from the CEO so I pick up the phone and call him no plan no strategy no foresight just what's supposed to happen next is just supposed to tell me we have an engagement so I'm going to call and ask for said engagement and as hopefully the story goes you find out I'm not saying these things out of arrogance like learning another lesson the hard way so I call him and he answers the phone and I pretty directly was like hey just following up on our session we had a great time together looking forward to building on that with your team And he was silent for a moment and then came out and said, Michael, I have to admit you're great in front of a room, but you need to tell me what anything you do has to do with my team. Mm. And I literally sat there staring at the floor, wanting to say, uh, dude, you were in the room. Also wanting to say, I'm sorry, like, what did, what did I just hear? Like all these competing narratives that were going through my mind. And although I don't recall exactly what I said next, I'm sure it sounded something along the lines of, ah, well, um, you see, er, as I was trying to come up with something intelligent to say in that moment in time. So needless to say that didn't lead to an engagement. And it's nobody's fault but mine. I was assumptive, I didn't follow through, there wasn't a lot of uh, communication in between when the session ended. If I'm being completely honest with myself, there had to be some sort of value disconnect between what the CEO saw and what he expected. All of those things I didn't address and then I assumptively asked the question in the phone call basically like, "So, when are we doing this?" <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Which right. couldn't have been any more off track. So mm-hmm. While that was both a painful and embarrassing experience for me, it has literally led to changes in how I approach all of my sales calls, whether they're following any type of engagement or not. It's literally changed how I often introduce myself in many of my speaking engagements. It's changed how I follow up after speaking engagements. And it's certainly changed how I proceed with some of my follow-up phone calls from a more strategic standpoint. So it took me from that place of um, ignorant assumptiveness
0: mm, <laughs> to uh-huh.
1: more of an elevated sense of awareness. And mm. now, literally, that is something that I address. At the beginning of a lot of my speaking engagements, you know, people might ask what brings a certified forensic interviewer into the world of serving as an executive resource or people may ask, how can a certified forensic interviewer help my team achieve their goals? And I'll literally throw that out there. So now I'm now I'm seeding the answer to that question from the beginning of many of my sessions and I'll work it into some of my colder sales conversations Mm -hmm. as well. So in the long run, it, it certainly paid off for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, certainly, in the short term, it was a rather uncomfortable thirty mm-hmm. seconds to three minutes.
0: Yeah. Well. Well. Thank you, Michael, for sharing the story. And then, without me having to prompt you, there was that redemption story and and that reflection around what you could have done differently and what you changed, what you started doing differently. And maybe we can explore some of that. But you know, I because I mean, uh, people you're trying to work with might make their own assumptions, right? Oh looking at Michael Reddington's background like what you think we're all a bunch of fraudsters why why are you bringing him in like people might get defensive right <laughs> They do. They might get defensive.
1: Uh, Unfortunately, like many professions, I'm sure Hollywood has done no favors for people in my shoes. Every for my former teammates and I, we come from the world of non-confrontational investigative interviewing. So literally everything we do is predicated on obtaining the truth by helping people save face and protect their self-image. And people will be surprised how well those techniques transfer around conversations. But when people think of interview and interrogation, they think of what they see on TV. Um, (laughs) Right. And then For any concept that is, I want to make sure I don't accidentally say this the wrong way. For concepts that are outside of somebody's typical line of experience, it can be a little bit more challenging to connect the dots. If I want someone to work with my sales team, shouldn't I want somebody with a history in sales? Well, maybe, sure. If I want somebody to work with my leadership team, shouldn't I want somebody with a history in leadership? Well, maybe, sure. I'm certainly not talking bad about either of those alternatives. Why would I want somebody who comes from an investigative interviewing background to do those things? Well, you know, we, and we can walk through that. Um, so so yes, all of those points lead to really having to take response. And it really is disciplined listeners. One of the things we talk about is w- we need to take responsibility for our counterparts' communication experiences. If somebody doesn't get where we're coming from, if they have an adverse emotional reaction, it's not okay for us to say, well, it's their it's their problem. Right. Actually, no. If we're trying right. to achieve something together, yeah. this is entirely my problem. I, yeah, and, and I need to
0: own that. And, and and I appreciate you and and so many other guests who tell their my favorite mistake story and then take ownership and responsibility. I mean, you, you know, you, you sort of alluded to, but you weren't totally blaming that CEO for like were were they not a good listener? What weren't they understanding? So I, I appreciate that you that you sort of take ownership of that and you know there's these different a words here this progression um assumptions and arrogance maybe but then you know moving beyond that to better awareness that's that's a great story and you know i think there's also a pattern that starts coming through many of the stories in this podcast about assumptions you know we make a decision at the time we don't think it's a bad decision but there might be some faulty assumption you know i'm thinking back um, in particular a previous guest, um, Ellen Patnaud, um, from episode 141 talked about making assumptions and in fact she's written a book now about that's coming out soon about the mistakes or you know the the problem with assumptions mm-hmm. and you know I I could see where bad assumptions could cause problems you know with people doing the work you've you've done at different points um in 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 your career so maybe we talked you know, before talking about, your, your more recent work, you know, I think it's interesting you started your career, you're working in uh, retail loss prevention, trying to identify shoplifters and employees who are stealing, you know, in, in that realm, it seems like there might be the risk that comes from making assumptions. How, how would you guard against that if you were doing that type of work? There's
1: There's risk everywhere in making assumptions. And part of that is we make assumptions every day, all day. And I believe you said her name was Ellen. I certainly don't have the depth of research or experience. Ellen does on the topic, and I don't want to pretend to. We make, experience, we make assumptions every day, all day. And for the most part, those assumptions turned out to be correct-ish, at least, because we, we continue to navigate our, our lives. So whether it's the overconfidence, whether it's our personal bias, those types of things that lead to the problems. But yes, when we when we talk about investigations, really, in any setting, it is... One of the things that we talk about, and honestly, was something I had to be taught, was investigating to prove somebody innocent as opposed to investigating to prove somebody guilty. And mm-hmm. it, because of the assumptions that you're talking about, mm-hmm. of all 175 or so cognitive biases we have, confirmation bias is the one that typically gets the most attention, and rightfully so in most contexts. So if I want to believe that Mark is guilty of something, mm-hmm. give me a minute. And I'll find something that convinces me that you are. It doesn't mean you actually are, but I can interpret some sort of behavior or word choice or action or whatever it means to be like, yes, that is representation of the guilt that I assume you to have. Whereas if I take a more factual truth-based approach to the conversation and allow the truth to come to me, now I have the opportunity to really limit those biases, to really limit those assumptions in the negative impact mm. of them. Yes. So whether we're actively observing some, in any context, if I'm actively observing somebody waiting to see what they do next, yes, at some point I'm going to see a series of indicators that seem to lead to a path that they're about to make a decision. That could be somebody driving down the highway, switching lanes. That could be somebody walking into an establishment with an aggressive air about them. Or that could be a customer who doesn't appear to be shopping the way a normal customer who intends on purchasing their items are. But, the point in all of those scenarios is to continue the observation through the action. I don't want to put myself in a position where I could become a victim or get hurt based on what's happening around me. But I certainly want to be able to observe through the action and not cut it off in advance based on the assumptions that I've made. So it's true in leadership. All too often, you know life becomes a series of self-fulfilling prophecies. There's a bunch of research that is very clear when it comes to listening specifically, that we tend to put as much energy and focus into any interaction as we believe warranted based on the expectations we carry into that conversation. So if we're assuming negative value from an interaction, often we're literally looking for the first perceived indication. Yep, there we go, I'm out. So, level setting those expectations, thinking more of taking more of a strategic goal focused approach, whether it's observing human behavior, whether it's conducting an investigative interview, or even in leadership, it all pays dividends across the board.
0: Yeah. And, you know, it seems like a bad assumption or a presumption of guilt then leads to all the confirmation bias, is one of those uh, traps that we people fall into the way the human brain works. We identify patterns. And like you said, that's a helpful shortcut going through most uh, moments in life to not overtax our brain, but it's those moments, you know, there, there are moments when that, uh, that, that gets us in trouble or causes problems.
1: It sure does. And from the investigative standpoint, especially when the perceived evidence begins to mount diagnosis bias now starts to set in. We tend to fall in love with one presumed outcome, one track choice, and we start losing sight or possibility that there could be other alternatives here. And that's where really to overcome the negative impact of these assumptions, really working hard to elevate our situational awareness becomes extremely
0: important. Yeah. So so, Michael, back to the one lesson you learned from the story that you told. Um, how do you introduce yourself today in the context of inquasive and being a certified forensic interviewer, being a speaker, being an author? What 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 how do you introduce yourself today? And then maybe tell us how that's a little bit different than how you might have done it previously. Sure. Um and I probably have, would have several
1: coaches that would tell me I need to pick one way and settle on it. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: um, but depending on the audience and the situation, there, there are several different tracks that I use. But typically, I go with I'm a certified forensic interviewer and executive resource. And honestly, I let it pause there because generally, each of those terms, let alone both in the same sentence, will cause a bit of a curious response for people. And I want that curiosity to set in. If I just say I'm a certified forensic interviewer and executive resource and and I keep talking, I haven't let that curiosity set in yet. But if I pause just literally for a second or two, I'm not talking something overly dramatic here, but just for a second or two, that allows for the curiosity to set in. And as soon as somebody wonders, wait a minute, what is that? Or wait a minute, did I hear that correctly? Or I'm sorry, mm-hmm. what? Yeah. Now they're actually listening to me. Yeah. <laughs> they have a question that needs to be answered. So by pausing, I create the opportunity to answer it. And then from there, there's a couple different tracks I can take. One is one that I mentioned earlier where I said, and a lot of times after I say that, Sony says, wait a minute, what did I just hear? Yeah. And the question I get next is, how does a certified forensic interviewer become an executive resource? Mm-hmm. And then I can mm-hmm. begin the explanation from there. Yeah. Um, or maybe it can be a little bit more direct, depending on the group. Same thing. I let it set in. And as an executive resource, I leverage my background as a certified forensic interviewer to teach leaders and sales teams how to acquire the information and create the commitments that are been eluding them. Yeah. So, so that's
0: nice a, and succinct. There's a good connection there. But what, what, what trap did you fall into before when you said you needed to improve the way you introduce yourself? Was the yeah. problem kind of going on and on and not leaving that gap? One was that, and the other was just assuming
1: that people saw the value in the perceived uniqueness. And I say perceived uniqueness because I do relatively frequently hear somebody say, Well, I'm not sure what a certified forensic interviewer is. I'm not sure that I've met one before. You know, but at the same time, to the degree that it may be unique, that's a double-edged sword. Being unique can be good. But if people don't understand it or don't know how to look for it, then it's it's not so helpful there either. Um, I remember early on in my career, when I first started spending more and more and more time teaching CEOs, I created a three-day seminar for a group of CEOs that I honestly in my bones felt like was leadership communication topics. When I was done, the feedback I got was great job. That was fun, but we're not going to interview anybody. We needed to be more leadership driven. And I literally stood there thinking to myself, that wasn't interview driven, But again, perception being reality, if they didn't feel like it was leadership driven, then it wasn't. So a pile of these experiences continue to lead me down a path of how do I look for opportunities to solve the riddle for people in a way that creates curiosity and helps them begin to perceive the potential value in continuing the conversation?
0: Yeah. So if I were to make assumptions, which I try not to do, I, I hear certified forensic interviewer, and I think like, oh, like the show CSI, if you're investigating sure. murders and crime scenes and interviewing sure witnesses, um, you know, so what, so what is, I mean, how do you define then certified forensic interviewer? I'm just curious a little bit, the process of going and getting certified. What's, yeah, that? that's, that, that's a great question and a common assumption. So Earning the certified forensic interviewer is a
1: designation. So it would be like a certified project manager or certified public public accountants pick any one of these professional certifications. So a, a certified forensic interviewer isn't necessarily a job in and of itself. It's a designation of expertise within the industry or career field of interview and interrogation. So there are prerequisites that people need to qualify for in order to be able to attempt to earn the designation. Like most professional designations, there's a rigorous exam that must be passed. After that exam is passed, then there are recertification credits that need to be maintained. So it follows the track of, I would assume most professional designations. The way that I like to describe being a certified forensic interviewer, which may not be officially authorized by the International Association of Interviewers, is we should be able to be blindfolded Rolled out of the back of a truck, and wherever we land, take off our blindfold and be able to conduct a morally, legally, and ethically successful interview mm-hmm. as predicated on obtaining the truth.
0: Yeah, obtaining the truth and doing so in different ways. So, you know, you, you mentioned the Hollywood cliches. I was going to ask you about that. I mean, I, it, you know, it, the show jumped the shark at some point, but I really you know, enjoyed the show 24. But the cliche of Jack Bauer, you know, as a CTU yeah. agent, and my wife and I, to this day, still kind of joke about it, like, he would ask a question. And if you don't get an answer, ask the question again, but louder, <laughs> that would always work somehow, you know, and like, that's probably not how real interrogations work of like bullying people. It sounds like it's more, tell, tell us about how it really should work and, and and how you build, let's say, rapport and trust.
1: Then Those are two huge components of it. So first, to be fair, there are many different contexts that interview and interrogations can occur in. And the processes for some of those different contexts can vary a little bit to substantially depending on the situation. So I am going to be careful not to make entirely blanket statements. Generally speaking, if we want somebody to either share information or change their behavior, that's a decision that they're going to have to make. Therefore, they are in control of this conversation, whether we like it or not. And the, the more needy we appear, the more that we try to bully them or force it, the more motivation we're giving them not to change their behavior or share the information, especially if it's a scenario where somebody feels like, OK, I'm already caught. So I can either keep my mouth shut and take my lumps to experience my consequences, or I can open my mouth and potentially make it worse for myself. Seeing you're not treating me with respect, allowing me to save face and trying to bully me through this conversation, I think I'll go with option A. I'll just keep my mouth shut and take whatever's behind door number two, seeing all I can do now is make the situation worse for myself. So really in any context, if it's interview and interrogation, if it is parenting, if it is leadership, candidate interviewing, coaching, sales, business development, whatever it is, if we want somebody to share information that they don't initially want to share, I would argue that at least 85% of the battle is encouraging them to save face and protect their self-image, allowing them to do that. Your question was specifically about interrogation. When we look at interview and interrogation, there's often two sides to the coin. One, there has to be some perceived credibility in the interviewer and the investigation. If people don't believe they're caught or they're about to be caught, then they have no motivation to share information. The flip side of that coin is they have to have the ability to save face and protect their self-image as they choose to talk about it in too many contexts. Again, business, personal, family, interviewing, there's a huge difference between commitment and compliance. And all too often, people in a leadership role fall into the entitlement trap. Well, you owe me this information. Mm. And then maybe they take more of that Jack Bauer approach. I'll just keep asking louder and closer and more (laughs) often and maybe throw some threats in here as well. And then at the end of that, if somebody's—if we get an answer that basically starts with "Okay, fine," mm. we feel great. Okay, I got what I was looking for. That's a loss. Like yeah, if somebody right, right. essentially says "Okay, fine," they're complying, and yeah. complying is obeying a command. And when someone complies, we can rest assured we're getting minimum necessary information over mm. minimum necessary time with minimum commitment. And this, in the investigative sense, there's likely at some point they're going to recant. Mm-hmm. And there's all kinds of substantiating information that we're never going to get. But when somebody commits to sharing information or commits to changing their behavior, they're taking some level of idea ownership. They're aligning their self-image with the decision, and they're likely going to share in much more depth and own it after the facts. Sure. So I may have strayed away from your question. And I'll certainly oh, that's pause okay. there. No, that's good. That's good. But conceptually speaking, that's where it starts.
0: Yeah. So let's say if you know you' you're're you're, you're talking with people, um, you're encouraging them to commit to sharing a, information about a mistake. This could be uh, in the category of white collar crime, whether it's you know embezzlement, maybe or sexual harassment or how, how how do you approach it when you know you're trying to get to the truth, you're trying to get them to share. what if, what if it seems not in their best interest to be truthful? <laughs> If we're being honest, it's extremely rarely in their best
1: interest to be truthful at that point. You know, for me, when I think about what led me to get my CFI and continue my education beyond that, it was the fascination I had with why do people continuously share sensitive information under vulnerable circumstances that directly leads to consequences? Why do they do that? So to me, that's what really led to this. And when we talk about getting people to discuss mistakes that they've made this I take the identical approach well, I shouldn't say identical essentially the same approach. there might be a few small differences. If it's in a, if I'm interviewing a victim witness suspect, if I'm talking to an employee, a customer, honestly, my five-year-old son, if I want somebody to admit to making a mistake, I have to remember that the number one fear that will stop most people from admitting wrongdoing, changing their behavior, sharing sensitive information is embarrassment, mm-hmm. feeling mm-hmm. judged. Yeah. So I want to make sure I have the conversation in a way that doesn't allow them to feel or limits the opportunity for them to feel embarrassed or judged. And at the same time, and this is one that tends to get people to stop and look at me like I have five heads. I want to give them the opportunity to leverage an excuse initially for why they did or didn't do whatever it is that they did or didn't do. As part of the safe phasing, I'll try to speak English here. As safe part safe, of the saving, face, saving thank yeah, you, right. process. All too often when interviewers, leaders, sales professionals, parents, when we hear an excuse from somebody in our world of accountability, and by the way, I'm a card carrying, hill defending, flag waving believer in accountability, how do we get there becomes the key. So when we hear somebody give us an excuse, that excuse consistently offends our sensibilities, right? So now we end up being angry that somebody gave us an excuse, angry that they didn't take accountability, angry that they thought maybe they could trick us or fool us or weasel out of this or whatever. And now we respond by attacking the excuse. What we fail to realize is if somebody says, I did this because they just told us they did it. Mm, Sure. If somebody says, I didn't do it because... They just told us they didn't do it. Mm-hmm. That is the hardest part of the conversation is yeah. to get the, I did it or I didn't do it. And when we snap at the excuse, we're literally taking their overture, their olive branch, literally right before telling us I did it because, or I didn't do it because they are telling themselves, okay, I'm willing to tell Mark this, but only if I can feel a little bit better by saying it this way. Yeah. Yeah. It's their internal negotiation. Then when we attack that excuse, we force them right back into their shell, which only makes us more angry.
0: Mm, Yeah. Which How else
1: would we respond or how else would we expect them to respond? So literally, when somebody says, I'm sorry, I did this because, or I didn't do it because, instead of getting mad at the excuse, realize that number one, we're now ahead of the game. The most difficult part of the process is over. The I did or didn't do it is on the table it is far more effective to lead somebody to accountability at the end of a conversation, as opposed to forcing it at the beginning of the conversation. Mm -hmm. So when somebody gives me the excuse and the mistake could literally be as benign as forgetting to send an email or Mm -hmm. shipping the wrong package or giving the wrong message, or it doesn't have to necessarily be a crime. In all of those conversations, literally after they give me the excuse, I try to consistently respond by saying, Mark, Thank you very much.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I didn't realize that. Mm. Please walk me through your thought process and how it impacted the decision.
0: Ah. Uh, so that and that seems like an, a respectful way of keeping the conversation going instead of shutting it down, right? Yes.
1: When people give us an excuse, they expect to be shut down. So That's when we right. say thank you, their internal reaction <laughs> is what just happened? Right? They didn't sure. expect that. So now we're showing respect. We're encouraging them to keep talking. And by encouraging them to continue talking about the excuse, we've created two opportunities. One, there's a chance that we might learn something. (laughs) Like Maybe there's some validity in here somewhere that doesn't absolve them of responsibility, but we can learn. So let's listen. The second is, let's just say it's a pure excuse. There's a near certainty that they didn't spend all night preparing this excuse. Mm-hmm. So when we ask them to talk about it, it's going to fall apart post haste. Mm. And when it falls apart, we lead them back to responsibility and they realize it's that they need to take responsibility as opposed to us trying to force it on
0: them. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like effective interviewing, uh, it's less about Thinking through like, here's the magic sequence of questions I'm going to ask and boom, I'm going to get a a confession. It sounds like in this, you know, I want to lead this into talking about your book. It seems like the key really is the listening, not the talking. That might sound obvious, but it seems like uh, people would miss that. I would agree. There's a prioritization there. Yes, having a strategic set of questions is always
1: helpful. I don't want to ignore that piece. Really going in, if I think to myself in any conversation, again, it's an investigative interview, victim, witness, suspect. It's a a coaching session. It's a business development opportunity. If I go into any conversation thinking, okay, what do I need to say to Mark to get him to tell me X, Y, Z? I'm a hundred percent focused on what I want to do. And now I might feel like I'm considering your perspective, but really I'm transposing my perspective onto you. So if I may illustrate something that we talked about in the book, I appreciate you bringing it up. From a preparation standpoint, I don't prepare for important conversations by asking myself, why, what should I say? Or why should Mark do this? I actually prepare by asking the opposite. Why shouldn't? Mark, share the information I want him to. And then literally now, because I'm kind of a caveman, I get a pen and paper. Some people might remember what those are. And I will literally write down, if I, okay, if I was Mark, knowing everything I know about Mark, why would Mark not want to share this information with me? I'll literally write it down. Then I'll ask myself, why hasn't he already shared? Whether it's with me or with somebody else. And the answer could be number one, you didn't know you were supposed to, or you didn't know you had the opportunity. Can't fault you for that. But number two, to get to a comment you made earlier, you don't see the value in it. Like if all I can do is make myself situation worse, create consequences, then I shouldn't. So I'll all right, I'll answer that. And then to circle back to the start of this question, then the final preparation question I'll ask myself in that sequence is what does Mark need to experience before he chooses to share this information mm-hmm. with me? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now it becomes all about creating the communication experience necessary to drive the preferred outcome Mm -hmm. and to get there. Strategic observation is a huge component of it. Yes, listening with our ears, yes, with our eyes, but also with our situational awareness and and being more open to factors that are impacting our interaction. And then using those observations to continue to evolve what we say and the questions we ask and how we connect to help people save face and choose to share this
0: information with us. So the the book again our guest is Michael Reddington the book uh, it's The Disciplined Listening Method How a Certified Forensic Interviewer Unlocks Hidden Value in Every Conversation and you know you're 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 making me think of scenarios let's say in sales so um as a consultant one of the challenges is you know you you've met an executive you're talking to a prospect at some point you Want or need them to be able to share. Here are some problems that we face in our organization. Here are problems that we need to solve. Here are problems you might be able to help us with. But in the context of a conversation, people are often back to your point of embarrassment. They might be embarrassed to admit they have certain performance problems in the organization. They might think they're the only ones or you know uh, how, how would how would you what are some methods that somebody can use to build comfort? and rapport and trust to get somebody to share things that would be not just to your benefit as the consultant trying to sell some consulting, but in a way that's then beneficial, at least perceived as being beneficial to them? How do you get them to open up? Great question. I'll give you a couple of alternatives. And to your point,
1: yes, they could feel embarrassed. Uh, They could also feel like sharing information is turning control in the conversation over to you. Like, a lot of people realize that it's like they've been in this context, they've been Mirandized as well. They know anything they tell us will be used against them at our first opportunity. So they, so they don't want to share that information yeah. with us. Um, so they could be embarrassed. They could feel vulnerable. Uh, they could not want to hand over control. Um, it could be a scenario where what was the, I just had another one. And honestly, it just totally escaped me um, <laughs> control or they um Well, I'm just going to move on. So here, I'll actually answer your question and that'll come back to me. So I don't put your listeners through the painful experience of me trying to jog that memory loose.
0: That's okay.
1: So there's been any number of books written and talks given on the power of stories and illustrations. So I want to do two things. I want to use the power of stories and illustrations to both increase the perception of my credibility and invoke the persuasive mechanisms. And I also want to avoid using the word you for as long as I can. Often we've been taught, operationally conditioned, to use the word you to demonstrate understanding to build rapport. You is one of the most dangerous words in the English language. Imagine talking to an executive and saying, "You know, as I take a look at your business and what your team is doing, it looks to me like you might be successful here, but you might be experiencing these issues here. So one of the biggest issues you're currently experiencing that's limiting your team's progress. Like. Every time we say the word you, we're jacking them right in the self-image. And if we've got a good relationship, maybe that doesn't hurt us. But to your point, if this is a new relationship, we could be doing all kinds of damage there. So instead, two alternatives. The first is something along the lines of, and this would be at the opening of the conversation, but wherever we see that it slots into the conversation. Mark, again, I, I appreciate you carving out the time to share with me today. Generally, I find that more often than not, when CEOs come to our team for potential support, it's generally for one of three reasons. Mm-hmm. One, two, three. And those reasons are typically impacting their business one of these two ways. And these are the three goals that they're looking to achieve. So it's like these, it's like a list of three, two, three. And literally, when I'm done with that, I'll pause because there's a chance you might actually say, as a matter of fact, and jump right in. Again, it's not a long pause. It's a second or two. After that pause, if you haven't said anything, now I'm going to follow up with the question. And here's where I do use the word you. I didn't use the word you in that example. Oftentimes, when CEOs come to us, it's for one of these three reasons because it's affecting their business in these two ways. And these are the three goals that they're looking to achieve. Bam. If they don't jump in right after that, then I come back with how does that, how well does that line up with what your team is currently experiencing?
0: Yeah, that's a great question then. And, and you're, you're, it sounds like, I mean, the the thing that seems really insightful about that, or one of the things is you're, you're, you're anchoring it. uh, You're helping them think about others. Like I see where the word you could trigger a reflexive defensiveness. Yes. Why did you do that? Okay. Well, mm. wait a minute. Like even think about problem solving in organization. Like why did that occur might be a little bit less loaded. That's a different scenario than you know this this consultant sales scenario that that I brought up. But I I could definitely see where that word you, like you said, it's a gut punch. It stings. For sure. Questions
1: can be perceived as invitations or attacks. And anytime we say to somebody anything in the family of why did you do that or why didn't you do that, we can rest assured that they're likely going to take that as an accusation and/or attack. And it's going to you used a great phrase, reflect reflexively make them feel defensive. Yeah. Where instead, if I was to ask them, looking back, I'm curious as to the goal we were looking to achieve when we made those decisions. Or what the goal, the goal, I can even say the word you hear. Looking back, I'm curious as to the goals you were trying to achieve when those decisions were made. So now the conversation isn't about why did you screw that up? It's about what goals were we trying to achieve? Because honestly, from a coaching standpoint, as long as you had the right goals in mind, we can coach the decision making process. But if you didn't have the right goals in mind, then we got to start there. And we got to work our way backwards. Um, I'm I'm keeping my geek on a leash. I promise. <laughs> sure. When we go through to get back to the consultant example, that process there are very real psychological mechanisms that we're invoking. So now, it, from a credibility standpoint, this isn't our first rodeo. We've talked to other CEOs before. They've shared information with us. So it not only is expected, but it's okay for this CEO to share information with us. To your point, they're not alone. They're not on an island. It gets deeper than that. Yeah, but it really makes a huge difference.
0: About, about.
1: Do I have one second to do the second alternative, or do you want me to throw no go go go
0: ahead?
1: The second alternative would be to share a story, and that story could be about ourselves if we were in a similar situation, but it's often more impactful if it's about another CEO. And it's not necessarily about mirroring the situation because that could come off extremely disingenuous. You know, the last time I had a conversation with somebody who led a $5 million IT organization with 35 employees, like, okay, uh, all right, I get it. (laughs) Like now you're clearly just trying to make this all about me when it's not. Instead, if I was to say something along the lines of, you know, often we work with CEOs who feel like their teams are sharing all of the requisite information in real time when unfortunately they're not because the employees generally share what they have to share when they have to share without negatively impacting their employment status. As a matter of fact, I was working with a CEO several months ago that was in a similar situation and only realized it because after she realized it and we worked through it, here's a few changes that she made that led to this potential outcome. I'm just curious how that mirrors your current experience with your team. So even using that story as an illustration, but when we use that story, again, it's important that we don't mirror somebody because that just becomes offensive. We use the vehicle as we use the story as a vehicle, essentially, to get the moral of the main point across to help reduce somebody's resistance. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you, Michael. One one quick question about the book, and I you know I hope people will go check it out. The Disciplined Listening Method. It's not a book. This would be a bad assumption, right? It's not a book for other forensic investigators. This is a Correct. book for who 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 is who is the audience for this book?
1: The, thank you for asking. I, other certified forensic interviewers are certainly welcome to read it, but especially this book was especially written for leaders, executives business development professionals, there's parenting examples in Hmm. there. This book was the, the book is the result of a wide range of research and experience over a broad section of topics, synthesized and put together in a way to provide people with the tools, perspectives and techniques to obtain more information, make better decisions, create stronger commitments across these business and personal conversations, not just interview and interrogation. So while there certainly are some of those examples in the book, to your point, it is absolutely written for a business audience.
0: Great. And uh, Inquasive, and I should have, it was my mistake not mentioning uh, the website up front. You can find uh, Michael and his company at inquasive.com. There'll be a link. In the show notes, um, and if you were to meet someone in an airport or at a party, I'm like, oh, so Michael, what, 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 what's your company do? How, how do you describe Inquasive?
1: I appreciate it. To keep it brief, I'll go right back to something we mentioned before. We teach executives, sales teams, and HR teams, how to obtain the information and create the commitments that have previously been eluding them. So we synthesize uh, research and best practices from across the world of business communication and interview and interrogation. I'll keep it short for your listeners. That typically manifests itself either in coaching and advising sessions or seminars, training programs, presentations, and such.
0: So there we have it, Um, Inquasive and Michael Reddington, Certified Forensic Interviewer. The book, again, is The Disciplined Listening Method, How a Certified Forensic Interviewer Unlocks Hidden Value in Every Conversation. Uh, The website, again, is inquasive.com. I'll share links uh, to to Michael's uh, websites, social media profiles uh, in the show notes again. So, Michael, thank you for being here. Thank you for telling your story. And thank you for giving us some really Practical tips about how we can be more disciplined and more effective listeners.
1: I appreciate the time. Thank you for the invitation. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you.
0: Well, thanks again to Michael Reddington for being our guest to learn more about him, his company Inquasive, and his book. Look for links in the show notes or go online, markgraven.com/slash mistake192. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work, and they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.